Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status is the only K-12 data analytics platform designed to turn analysis into engagement. To learn more about how School Status can change your school district, head over to schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 68, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Time Magazine puts teachers' pay front and center. One state has a new law that requires not one, but two recesses. And this new overlooked feature on your iPhone may be a game changer for kids and adults. Stay with us. Class Dismissed Podcast is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we speak with a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're learning how you can use theater to interpret core curriculum. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how you doing? I'm great. How's the uh, school year going? You're just chugging along here, right? Chugging. Trucking? <laughs> Tr- trudging? Trudging. Right. Crawling. Crawling. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Whatever. Crawling along? <laughs> it's going great. I really do feel like last week, I felt like, okay, we finally hit our stride. Like, we got this. I don't know if you remember the episode we did with Roxana Eldon the first time, um, and she talks about her book in her book where you hit... Um, tr- October is yeah, what she said. The disillusionment phase, phase. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do you worry about hitting that in October? I mean, it's like right around the corner. No, I, do, I don't, I guess, worry about it because I've been there before. But I can see what she means for like a new, a brand new teacher, you right. know. But, but I mean, I'll be honest, you know, week two, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, are we ever going to all get on the same page as far as what I expect of the students and what, you know, what they deliver back. And, but we're, we're there now. We're good. So and I feel you like whipped all, them into shape? Yeah, that's right. And even the other classroom teachers, they were saying, you know, that this week they finally feel like yeah. their, their classroom is running like a well-oiled machine because it has to. That's good to hear the school's going so well. Um, I guess you have fall break coming up uh, pretty soon, right? That's right. So I don't know. Not every district probably does fall break, but um, I know they do down here. I think it's a great idea. I know. If there's a spring break, there should be a fall break. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Why don't we go ahead and jump into the uh, teacher's lounge? Tell me what's going on. Well, I'm sure that we're talking about what everybody's talking about, which is the Time Magazine. Uh, Yes, I saw that. Well, not article, but the cover. I mean, And it was like multiple versions. It was multiple versions. Yeah, I did not realize that at first, but then as I was looking into it, I was like, oh, cool. So let's pretend that somebody is under a rock and they hadn't seen this this amazing cover from Time Magazine going around. Can can you help me describe it? Yes. So it shows a teacher, a photograph of her in her classroom, and then it just says like, hey, I have 10 years of teaching experience and a master's degree and I donate plasma twice a week to pay my bills. Yeah. And that's that's the one that was the plasma thing of the, of the three, I think, that there were that really jumped out at me. Like to think that somebody, first off, from what I understand, I've never done it. But it's painful. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't done it, but it scares yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, it's way more painful than giving blood, so I've been told. And, and just the fact that, you know, here's a person with a college education. Master's degree. A master's degree, you know, in a school district, and they're, they're donating blood to, to make ends meet. 
And, and I, we've talked about this. This is episode 68. We've talked about this probably at least touched on it in almost every episode we've ever done that like teacher pay is certainly a problem. But this is great, I think, that Time Magazine's putting it front and center because you know, not everyone listens to podcasts and reads just about teacher and education articles. This is putting it front and center in front of people in other industries. Yes, and I think it does. I mean, it, it does really hit home when you see you know, somebody that looks, all of the teachers, by the way, all say that they're happy to teach, that that's what they want to do. They just want to be paid for the work that they do. They want to be fairly compensated. But to hear what they do outside of school. So, of course, I'm, you know, sitting at school and I'm like, did y'all see that Time magazine? You know, well, all the teachers are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they all know that I have a second job. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a single mom. So, right. yes, you have to have a second job if you're going to be a teacher as a single mom or you better live with your mom, you know. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's how it works yeah. or have a roommate or something. And so they all knew that I have this whole other job. But I did not know how many of those teachers that I have worked alongside since the beginning of the school year have other jobs. Like one mm-hmm. of them was like, yeah, I work on weekends at a wedding venue and I, I bust the tables every Friday, Saturday and Sunday wow. for their events. And I was like, really? And the other girl goes, yeah, I do it with her. And then another one says, yeah, I work at a clothing store on the weekends and then two yeah. two nights a week. Another one works at a gas station. Another one does bookkeeping. They all just started, two of them work at their church as, right. as a part-time employee at their church. That's a small sample that you've talked to, but I mean, are we talking yeah. 50%? Well, I mean, there's 30 teachers yeah. at my school. So, I mean, yeah, that would be def- those that were just standing there. Every single one of them has right. some other way, you know, to make up for what they're not being paid as a professional. Right. I mean, and we're starting to see, you know, incremental increases in pay in certain states. And these are the states that our teachers are protesting and, and they're voting out legislators. And uh, we talked about Oklahoma, you know, six people who voted against the teacher pay raise were didn't make it through the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really think that's what it comes down to. And, and for too long, I think we've just kind of been lackadaisical and just let our legislators do what they want. But it's so important, not just for teachers, but for people who are in other occupations who believe in the mission of teachers to speak up and tell their legislators, like, look, you, you got to do something about this. And that's why I think a Time Magazine cover is so important because it it puts it in front of other people who aren't teachers. Let me tell you who it's most important for. The parents right. of the children we teach. Because the, the cost of educating one child per state varies. The lowest is $6,000 per student to educate a public education. That's how much the lowest state pays, but it goes up to 18000 So if we just took the lowest, 6000 that's 500 a month that that parent could, could have to pay for their child to have an education, 500 a month. So if you think about your child being in daycare before they were school age, you paid about 500 550 where we live. I'm sure it's more elsewhere, but per child, it was, you know, somewhere around 600 right. So if you think about it, you know, when your children are with us during the day and we're educating them and doing our very best for them, you're able to work. So when your child is sick, you're not able to work. You have to call in sick and you're home with your sick child. Right. So I feel like, yes, the teachers are out there beating the streets saying, we've got to pay attention to this. And yes, we're trying to get people in upper 
you know, political views to, to step in. But the parents have got to quit being lackadaisical about this. Because if you look at the reality of it and how much it costs to educate one single child. Right. And, and what the, the government, as far as tax dollars, is putting back into the system, wouldn't it be awful if one day we had no public education and it was all private education, then that would be coming out of their pockets. And I know that they pay taxes and that that goes into the budget and then trickles down. But only 26% of what states pay usually, I mean, I know it fluctuates state to state, but that is what goes back into education. They have to take your tax dollars and put it elsewhere outside of education. So I do feel like sometimes parents who have children in public education, they don't want their taxes to change. Mm -hmm. But if it meant that you couldn't send your child to school, if it meant that teachers went on strike for the next month and you couldn't work because you had to be home with your children, Mm -hmm. you might would think differently about raising your taxes. For me with teachers, you know, there's other jobs out there that are basically funded by government that aren't paid enough that probably deserve more money. You know, policemen, firemen come, come to mind. Yeah. But, with a teacher, there are no policemen, there are no firemen, there are no anything. And, and so like it, it, it's another level for me for educators uh, just because they are training the future. And as I've gotten older, you realize how quickly time goes by and that, you know, even, you know, I've known you for a long time, the, the kids that you taught your first few years in school, they're applying for regular jobs. They're well into regular jobs now. Right. And so you realize just how quickly that happens just in a, in a blink and, you know, that's the impact that teachers are having. Right. And I and I just, I get it that the state says there is no more money. Like, where are we going to pull it from? Mm-hmm. But that's when I say, okay, well, then maybe we need to look for the parents, too, to say, okay, you know what? We are willing for there to be a tax increase because it's hard to get change when you don't change what you're putting in. All right. Changing gears. Um, I saw a story out of Arizona about recess. How many recesses do you guys have at your school? Just one a day for all students or? Right. Every child has recess once a day and they have PE twice a week. So some days that would be considered double recess. Apparently a new Arizona law pushed by advocates who say playtime burns off energy and helps younger students learn um, has led to a new law being passed that requires two recesses a day for it looks like kindergarten through third grade. And then eventually they're going to bring it all the way up to fifth grade. Is that a good thing or overkill in your opinion? I do not think it's overkill, um, but I do think that it's a good thing for all the students that have attention problems, Mm -hmm. hyperactivity issues, and just restlessness. So I do, you know, it's so hot where we are right now that that is a problem, you know, to be able to fit that in twice a day is just so hot for the kids. But I do think some form of, you know, there's a lot of schools that do the daily mile, Mm -hmm. And they just basically run around their campus for a mile and then go back to Every class. Every day? Every day. No way. And so, a mile? A mile. For elementary kids? It's a very popular thing. I it, mean, I remember... Lots of schools are doing the daily mile. Teachers do it, too. I remember running a daily mile. I mean, a mile in elementary school, but that was like a big day. Like, we're like, oh, we're running the mile today. Like, it was... Nope. It's the daily mile, and the teachers, everyone on campus does it. Everybody wow. does it. It's Walk like a it, big run it, push whatever. thing. That's right. Yeah. And so, the max amount of time it could take you is like 17 minutes. Yeah. And the, the shortest amount of time, you know, it could take you, you know... Seven for seven. Yeah, for Uh, elementary. I I currently run a seven-minute mile. I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I don't. I'd be 17. Yeah, but still, I mean, that could be your second recess if you do the daily mile. And so that's like everybody get out and go. You know, teachers and all, and 
It's a good, I think it's such a positive thing. Do you notice a difference from the kids that you see right after recess compared to the ones that you have, say, right before recess? <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to name right names. after is not the best thing to say because sometimes they're very frustrated of something that went down on the playground that, you know, wasn't fair. Right. They're hot and bothered or whatever. We usually do breathing exercises when they come straight into my class from recess. But, yeah. But yes, I do notice that they're not as the the kids that I see right before lunch are. They don't you know, pay attention. It's hard to contain. Yeah, it's yeah. just hard. And either that's because they're hungry, or it's right. because they haven't had recess yet. But those that I've had, like maybe if they had recess, then they had maybe a thirty minute break, and then they come to me. They're those are like my best behaved classes. Well, maybe truly. we need two lunches if they're hungry. <laughs> well, they do have morning snack. Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, I know that really is important to my kids. Like they, they just to have like that bar or something, you know, at 10 a.m., especially if you end up with the one o'clock lunch or whatever. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my oldest son just grazes through the entire day. I can't <laughs> imagine the people that he gets on their nerves with eating. But what do you mean? Like, are you going to eat that? Like, take well, him- no, just chomping through class. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he, you know, is just sitting right there, just chomping on something. You know, well, I, I can't stand to hear people eat. So that would bother me. But Anyway, I think it's great. I think if as long as the, you know, they can get their instructional time in and, you know, really, I think a lot of times in education, there is some fat that can be trimmed as far as what the children do in a day. You know, if, if you're having truly active centers in your classroom where you are one-on-one engaging with your children and you are working in small groups on specific skills and the other groups are truly locked in and doing what they're doing, then sure, you could spare an extra 20 minutes, you know, instead of everybody just, you know, working on something independently, you could spare an extra 20 minutes for an extra recess. If not, at least twice a week. Right. Well, I've got another thing I feel like I need to point out, and I don't even have a news article to back this up or anything, but um, have you downloaded the new iOS 12 for your iPhone? No. no. Okay. It came out Monday. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's only just been out for a couple of days, but you can get it. You probably have iOS 11. Point four, point one. Wait, are you talking about like a new phone? No, no, just the software. Like your phone, assuming it's newer than like an iPhone 6 or something, you can put the new operating system on there. It's available now. Oh. Yeah. You, it'll eventually like pop up like in a I few days. I decline those. I'm sure I'm like too bad. <laughs> well, we need to look at your phone version because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be like way behind. I'm sure I am. Which you can do. But anyhow. <laughs> one of the overlooked things that I haven't like seen a lot, a lot of news articles about or people talking about is one of the more powerful features I think that you can have for children and, and even adults. And um, it's called screen time. And it, this is like built into Apple's system now. So it's their product. It's not a third party app. So if you have the new operating system, go check out screen time because what it does is it tells you like how your usage is through the day, which we've talked about using that app moment that did that. But this takes it a step further and you can easily schedule downtime and also limits on specific apps and also like specific app genres. So in other words, like I last night I put in my phone, I do not, I want it to like not allow me to use my phone for social media if I'm using it beyond an hour and a half a day. So, and, and I, one of the things I consume a lot with social media is Twitter um, cause I use it basically for news, but it's essentially social media that falls in that category. So, um, I just think that, you know, you can do it for games or whatever. So everyone needs to make themselves familiar with this. So like you potentially could go to your, your child's phone and say, all right, you get two hours of games on your phone a day and then it's going to lock up 
not let you go into those game applications anymore unless I type in the magic pin code huh. to uh, let you bypass it. So like when these kids get home from school and they immediately hop on YouTube and watch these gamer videos, mm-hmm. you could limit that too. Absolutely. And same thing, um, you downtime. So we were talking about like app limits just there, but what they call downtime, it says set a schedule for time away from the screen. During downtime, only apps that you choose to allow and phone calls will be available. So potentially, I haven't actually done this yet, but I think you could probably go into your phone and say like for two hours right after school, or maybe like maybe mm-hmm. you leave a half hour window there. Not until your homework's done. Yeah. Exactly. And you just set that in there. Lock up the phone. I don't know. I mean, I just think that one, it's great that Apple has put that feature in there and I just don't want people to overlook it. Um, you know, and I not realize I've never known about that. Well, you haven't even updated your <laughs> operating system, apparently. So it's just one of those things. Now you might get in a fight with your kids over this and, and so forth, but at least it's good to know that the controls are now in place and they're easy to use, easy to set up, and it's it's vanilla. It's already in there. Good to know. Yeah. Are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. We are talking to a gentleman out of New York who is somewhat of a theater expert and teacher, and he uses theater to not just teach collaboration, but also to dive into other coursework. So he uses theater and helps other teachers use it in, say, English or history and so forth. So um, pretty interesting angle on how you can use theater. I like it. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is an educator, performer, and choreographer. Paul Rojekis uses theater and storytelling to help students interpret core curriculum. He does this by working with students and other educators in his Telling Tales workshop. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Nick. How are you? I am doing fantastic. We appreciate you joining us. You know, the Telling Tales workshop really caught my eye, um, the way you're using theater to teach students. How did this idea come about for you? Well, actually, it has a long history behind it. Uh, I've been working as a theater performer and educator for about 30 years now, or over 30 years. I've been collaborating with a, a, par- a friend and partner, Neil Intraub, and over those years of uh, teaching workshops and uh, doing performing, uh, we developed a way to make the arts understandable to students, and uh, that project is called the art of collaboration so the neil and i have been honing and perfecting this uh, workshop format called the art of collaboration over many years and once the opportunity for telling tales came about i i borrowed a lot of material from the work that neil and i have done so that's where the uh, the telling tales uh, started and so you you started has your goal changed along the way how did you start what were you going for and is that still what you're doing Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when initially, when we started, uh, when I started teaching this, and Neil and I started teaching this, we did what a lot of people do. We 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 try to teach technique. We try to teach uh, jargon, um, some esoteric concepts about how to create uh, material and all that. And we realized that we weren't getting through to a lot of people. And our goal, especially as being educators, if we're invited into schools and universities, is to reach as many people as possible. So the goal was to, to try to distill uh, what it is we do into language and into a, a, a workshop format that everybody will feel comfortable participating in. So that's that's the major transition that happened over the years. And I took that experience of trying to make it accessible to everybody and brought it into the Telling Tales project. 
So give me an example of how this plays out for you when somebody wants to, to book you or have the workshop come to their, whether it's K through 12 or, or university or wherever. It, is there a, another teacher that's like, hey, I want to help, you know, accomplish X or Y? Well, it, it, good question. Often before, if anybody were to call me and I first ask them, well, what do you want? I mean, are you? Uh, do you want your students to understand the curriculum better? Uh, do you want them to, um, to to have an experience of creating art? Um, there's so many things that we need to uh, sort of uh, establish first before I can tell them whether whether or not the workshop will be appropriate. So that's the first conversation we have, and the the good news is the workshop can can really check a lot of boxes. It's appropriate for all those things. So let's say someone says, well, I want my students just to have an experience working together, building community. That's what theater does. It's an, it's a collaborative process. Uh, students learn how to watch, listen, pay attention to each other, follow instructions, uh, give space to different ideas. That experience happens. Someone else says, I want them to have a better understanding of um, reading and writing. For instance, ESL students, um, that they they would have an opportunity to practice language. But but in my style in a, a, of a theater, I also add the physical component. Because when you combine a physical component with the spoken word, something special happens. You start to understand uh, an idea in a deeper way. Uh, and especially in this case, and I just use the example of ESL students, but they begin to understand language and the feeling that goes or the meaning that goes behind the words that they use. So that's part of how this is uh, expressed. It, you know, it, from watching some of your videos, it's clear that you have the students. I mean, they're up out of their chairs. They're they're moving around. They're expressing themselves <laughs> physically like, like you were describing. Um, why is it important to do that with, say, maybe a, a core subject like English or history or, or something that we don't really think about getting out of your chair for? The idea of the getting up out of their seats and moving around is, is not necessarily connected to the core uh, uh, any particular topic. The idea is to first build that sense of community, to learn how to get back to playing again, improvising, looking another person in the eye, uh, just relaxing, and and then learning that, that this 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 kind of lowers their defenses, so to speak. And then we could start using uh, uh, the idea of prompts to start developing stories uh, based on whatever the, uh, the teacher and I agree we should work on. And so I know what you mean when you say prompts, but somebody who's not familiar even with that that theater type term, kind of explain, give me an example when you say prompts, what you're talking about. Okay, let's, well, let's see. Let's go to the university level. I mean, I'll, I'll jump into the a Telling Tales project that uh, that. that that we started talking about. So a professor would say to me, I want to teach my students about uh, discrimination in, in, in labor law. That sounds pretty es esoteric and uh, you know difficult to maybe just uh, grasp for someone who's never heard it before, including myself. Uh, so what I would do is I'd come up with a prompt that might be like, have you or anyone you know ever experienced discrimination in your life? And you'll discover as people share their stories uh, in a circle, we have a, a story circle that we do, that everybody has had an experience of it, either in their own lives or with someone that they know. So this, this is, they start making a personal connection to the topic. And then once these experiences are all shared, 
we then use that as the material for us to create a performance uh, based again on what discrimination may look like or feel like to another person. Can, can you make that real for me? Can you give me an example of, of maybe something a student has shared when you when you gave uh, sure. them a prompt? Sure. So uh, I'll, I remember in uh, the Oswego workshop, State University Oswego, that particular prompt was introduced. And uh, one young lady said uh, that I used to um, have a job where every time we had a break, I would raise my hand and say, it's time to go. And uh, I would go to the bathroom and the male manager, I guess the floor manager, would clock her. So and if she came back about a minute after that break, there would be uh, some sort of a penalty. I forgot what it was. And then she noticed that when the guys had the same break, the male manager ended up chatting with them. In other words, the clock wasn't running anymore. So she had that experience. And what was most powerful was uh, the other male students in the classroom. They were watching this and they would go, that really happened to you? Right. It, it, <laughs> so, <laughs> it, because because I guess it's a real experience, uh, I'm taking it that these students are, are now engaged as opposed to, say, if they just read about discrimination in a textbook. You got that, Nick, exactly. That's the whole idea. Theater, theater is uh, physical theater, movement theater, the kind that I do. It's it's making whatever is internal, external, your feelings, your experiences. How do you communicate them to an audience? So this experience for these students, we then use that example that I just described to you to create a performance. The students actually had to talk to this young lady and go through her experience with her choreograph something. And uh, um, I, I would say they probably will never forget that. Can you give me another example of where you've watched the workshop um, actually just click with a student? What was interesting is in a, liter- a literature course, there was um, a particular author was being studied, uh, Cortaza, which is a South American writer. And much of his uh, short stories are, are built around surrealism. And many of the students, they found that they didn't understand what that meant. So the professor had asked me to, in this case, it's not even coming up with a prompt, but can we take a scene from one of these uh, or a couple of paragraphs from one of these short stories and turn it into a performance? Now, again, we're working with people that have no theater experience. I do not expect them to have theater experience. We're just using those techniques that we talked about earlier, with the physical techniques where I said it warms everybody up and lowers their defenses. We use those as a starting points to come up with a, a movement interpretation of the scene. And the students had a different way to understand, uh, well, they came away with a different way of understanding what this writer was trying to say in his surrealistic stories. Now, I also have to add, Nick, that this is my contribution to this class, but the professor has to be my partner in this too. I mean, he he needs to be part of the experience and then relate to the course material to what I'm doing uh, in, a th- in a theatrical vein with the students. It's a partnership, very important piece here. Uh, you don't just throw me into a classroom go away and come back and the students have changed. We have to work together to make sure they understand what's going on. 
so let's say you're in New York City, right? Are you in New York State or yes? All right, so uh, I'm in uh, I'm in the Bronx. <laughs> okay, so, so you're up there, and say if there's somebody listening in there in California, and and they can't necessarily yes. you know book you fly across the country, but is there any reason like uh, say a K through twelve teacher couldn't apply some of those skills? Like if they're reading a book that's just you know it's the book that's required, uh, it's not that interesting. You know, how would you give them a little pointer to say, let's make this more interesting for the students? The first thing that comes to mind is I would say try to to focus on acting out, having students act out, play, create using words or more specifically using movements. I, I, I emphasize movement because for some students, they're not comfortable using language yet to express themselves. But a lot of children, especially younger children, have no problem with that. So I would say that as a teacher, focus on one part of that story and have them act it out. And act out with uh, with in, with a very clear intention. In other words, what are we trying to say? Keep it very simple. Perhaps they take only five or six sentences out of the story, and 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 put that on in front of the classroom in a little performance. This is what this is something anybody can do. But but Nick, it's a little bit harder though than than it than it sounds because you do need some tools in the beginning, some ideas of how to express yourself physically. So that's that's where the um, that's the part that would be a little bit more difficult to explain to a teacher. Uh, basically, what I'm talking about is teaching them how to concentrate, cooperate, and uh, commit themselves to something 100%. There's ways to practice that, and and that would be something that. Uh, that might be more challenging to teach. You've talked about the benefits of, of theater and, and collaboration and how these students are learning to collaborate with each other. Why is that so important um, uh, for, for in the workplace or, or wherever? Oh, my goodness. That it's important. Well, I, I, I could see the importance now of living in, in the world, learning how to, you know, working with other human beings. Uh, it's important because we live in, in a, in a, in a social world there are other we're not alone we're not isolated and and in when we go to um as we learn to go into different uh, into different work situations or uh, anything like that you have to learn how to listen to somebody you have to learn how to to um uh, to collaborate to cooperate to get something done that that's that's the important part of it that's actually the subtext of a lot of these workshops that teachers often are very happy about they say that maybe the students will forget uh, they won't learn the theater part of it or they'll forget the exercises you taught them but they will not forget the effort it took to work together to create something together that and that's something that in any work situation is absolutely important learning how to negotiate listen and watch the, the past 10 years have been interesting, and and this isn't just a knock on millennials because I think we're all guilty of it, even those from all generations. And, you know, we, we can sit together and all be looking at our phones rather than collaborating <laughs> and talking to each other. Uh, do you feel like this is more important now than ever? Absolutely. One of my greatest pleasures is watching everybody turn off their cell phones in class, actually turn them off, not just put them on uh, mute, turn them off and spend six hours. I'm, now I'm talking about a, a longer residence. It doesn't have to be six hours. And, and looking at each other in the eye 
talking, discussing things, taking a moment to think about something somebody said, uh, looking at facial gestures, how much they uh, express about what you're thinking and feeling. That is, is, is wonderful to see the discovery in students' eyes as they do that. I mean, you can see on the website some of those videos, the joy in the workshops. It's, it's people engaging together in an ensemble. It's a, that's a special that's a special takeaway from the workshop. If somebody wants to learn more about the Telling Tales workshop, what's the best way to, to track that down? So the, the website is P. Rajekas, which is Paul, a P as in Paul, R-A-J-E-C-K-A-S as in Sam, uh, dot com. And uh, there's a section there on the Telling Tales project with uh, uh, different videos showcasing how the process works. And I think people get a pretty good idea of what happens when the students are working with me. Well, Paul, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you uh, ready for our pop quiz? Oh, wait, let me, let me sit up. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> okay, I'll here, try not here to we throw go. You any curveballs, but first question, <laughs> if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? <laughs> I was just, the first thing that came to my mind is the arts. Because I think it, you can cover everything in that. Is that fair enough? Is arts too big, Nick? No, no, no. I, I think I think we can run with that. I, I figured you'd go that direction, but you just never know. So I'm always curious to see. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Giving people a chance to work together in ensemble so they learn how to listen and watch each other. For sure, that's what I see needs to be done more. What would you say to the student? This isn't one of the questions, but I'm just curious since you, you work, you get people to work together so much, but what do you say to the student that goes, oh man, I hate group work? <laughs> I said, well, then you probably have other skills we can utilize. If you don't want to perform, you might turn out you're a pretty good writer. Oh, maybe you're a good director. Oh, wait a second. Maybe you're a good choreographer. Uh, choreographer. So uh, there are a lot of uh, possibilities for the student that hates working in a group. What does every child deserve? A reflection of, uh, of uh, a reflection of how special they are in the world. Their self-esteem is so important. If a child has self-esteem, has self-esteem, they can achieve wonderful things. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Making the making whatever the students are learning relevant to their lives. What's the best gift to give an educator? <laughs> A big raise. Uh, and uh, besides that, a gift, uh, the, free, uh, the freedom, the opportunity to work with their peers. That's what I think is the best, the best gift. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Salmon. Well, there were several, Nick. They're teachers that changed my life. But Mr. Salmon, the history teacher back in, um, in high school, he would, uh, I was very shy. It's probably hard to believe, but uh, I was shy and uh, kind of withdrawn. And in his class, he used sort of a Socratic model where he he would just ask questions of students. And he always asked me questions. And he asked them with a smile. And he asked them in a way that had a sense of humor. And it made me feel like whatever I had to say was important. I will never forget that gift. And that is what I try to bring to every workshop I teach. It almost sounds like he deserves some credit for, for you getting into the arts and theater, huh? 
Well, yes, I'd, I'd say so. The, the whole entry into theater was a whole nother story. But that's <laughs> probably good for another podcast. But yes, he certainly did because that self-esteem that I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, he gave me that. In other words, what I had to offer was not was important, and that I never forgot that. And last question: pen or pencil? <laughs> pencil. I can always you always need to revise. <laughs> All right, Paul, then uh, thanks again for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Are you on social media or anything if somebody wants to track you down there? Uh, yes, uh, um, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, that's about all I do right now. I use I use those to promote events. Uh, th- that that's about it. Okay, sounds good. And and what do you happen to know your Facebook uh, handle? I guess they can just type in your name, Paul Paul Rajakis. Uh, yeah, right? If you type in my name or you type in the, uh, I usually try to uh, present my work through the plays that I've written uh, in collaboration with other people. So Notes to the Motherland is, is an example of, uh, of one of the plays that I've put together. That, that would be a quick way to get access to everything that I do. All right, Paul, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.